This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast where we talk about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement. I'm Marianne Matzo, a nurse practitioner, and I use my experience from working as a nurse for 44 years to help answer your questions about what happens at the end of life. And I'm Charlie Navarrete, an actor in New York City, and here to ask the questions that you may have while listening to our podcast. We both believe that the more you know, the better prepared you are to make difficult end-of-life decisions in advance. Please relax and get yourself a little something to eat and drink, and thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me. In the first half, Charlie reports about dying laughing and has our recipe of the week. In the second and third half, we continue an interview series that I did over the past two years with Stephen Lemke about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, and about lung transplants. This show is dedicated to Stephen, who died in Moorhead, Minnesota, two months ago. Hey, Charlie, what do you got for us this week? Nothing. I got plenty of nothing and... Oh, sorry. And nothing's plenty plenty for for me. me. Actually, a funeral recipe. This week's funeral recipe. I love funeral recipes. Mm -hmm. Well, you won't be disappointed, I think. Maybe you will be. I don't know. Let's find out. This funeral recipe is a classic Midwestern comfort food served at funerals across the Midwest United States and Northwestern Canada. I get there's there's nothing in between. Also known (laughs) as chow mein casserole or Minnesota hot dish. I bet you are wondering what a Minnesota hot dish is. Well, when well I was, I'm a Michigan hot dish, so. Yes, I didn't want to go there, but I'm glad you did. But I still <laughs> censor what I was going to say about that. Uh, well, yes, but it is none other than the unofficial state cuisine of Minnesota, a comfort food staple found in households. Hot dish is a type of casserole that incorporates a mixture of simple, thrifty ingredients and the dump and stir method. (laughs) (laughs) That's a technical term, right? I think dump dump, dump and stir. I'm I'm sure it is. Not shaken. No. Dumped and stirred. Not shake and bake, but dump and stir. Exactly. Got it. This recipe is an easy-to-prepare ground beef and rice casserole with cream soup and chow mein noodles. But... Mm -mm, Good. Yes, but man does not live by bread alone. Occasionally, there must be a beverage. A French hospital serves wine and caviar to palliative care patients. It's it's France, folks. What are they going to serve? Beer and pretzels? Humor and hospice are words most people don't associate as going together like Batman and Robin, steak and eggs, a double scotch. People expect that hospice is a time for sadness and grief, and certainly there are those times. If you tell someone you work in hospice, they get a solemn look on their face and say, that is just too depressing. I could never do that kind of work. But hospice can also be a place for humor. A study from Kent State published in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Care revealed that humor was present in 85% of 132 observed nurse-based visits. Additionally, 70% of the humor was initiated by the patient. 
You throw a banana peel on the floor of a nursing home, and yes, humor will be initiated by the patient. If humor is part of living, then why should it not be part of dying? Laughter and dying is not to be confused with die laughing or death from laughter, which is a rare form of death, usually from either cardiac arrest, which is different from a heart attack, or asphyxiation caused by a fit of laughter. Instances of death by laughter have been recorded from ancient Greece to modern times. Sometimes laughing too hard can be dangerous. One ancient account of death from laughter is the death of Greek philosopher Chrysippus, also known as the man who died from laughing at his own joke in the 3rd century B.C. The story goes, he died from laughter after he saw a donkey eating his figs. He told the servant to give the donkey wine to wash them down. He laughed so hard at his joke, it killed him. Yeah, I don't find it that yeah. funny either, so I don't know. How yeah. To, yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess yeah. he just must have abused himself. <laughs> he must have been drinking the wine before he said that. Which is why he found it so funny. You know what? That's it. And then he just started laughing and then choked on it. Okay, good. Mystery solved. More. And the next week in our unsolved mystery cases, we have... Da, da, da. More recently, in 1989, during the film A Fish Called Wanda. Marianne, have you seen uh, A Fish Called Wanda? I've seen it multiple times. Me I too. Very funny. I, I do too. I love when those dogs keep getting killed. (laughs) 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 Oh, I made Charlie choke. He's going to die from laughter. (laughs) I'm dying here. That was very funny. So one of the characters uh, played by Michael Palin, he just loves animals. They're near his heart. And and, and he just accidentally keeps killing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these pets. Oh, yeah. All right, you, you, mm. See the film. You, you'll see. It's very, very funny. Really? So anyways, um, during uh, during watching um, uh, A Fish Called Wanda, a 56-year-old Danish audiologist called Oli Betson reportedly laughed himself to death. Laughter itself doesn't kill, but in rare circumstances, it can trigger a condition where you will die laughing. For our purposes... Laughing improves a mood and attitude. As for the rest of the story of the French hospital serving wine to people at the end of life, you will have to stay tuned for that one on an upcoming episode of Everyone Dies. Such a tease. Uh, Marianne, do you know what's uh, holding up uh, that report? Um, No, Charles. I can't even begin to imagine who hasn't turned in their report yet. Uh, yeah, me neither. We'll have to ask Sandy, uh, about that. <clears throat> it's probably her. Yeah, yeah. It's probably Sandy. Okay, good. Yeah. Yes. Charlie. So please go to our webpage for the chow mein casserole or Minnesota hot dish recipe. Maybe a couple of photos of that Minnesota hot dish too. We'll see. Um, and additional resources for this program. We hope you will follow us on Facebook and Instagram and remember to rate and review this podcast. We are working with a company called Haibu. We really need your feedback and evaluation. Uh, So please take a minute and go to haibu.us forward slash B-O-Z 
M B. And this is on our webpage, so you can just be easier just to go to the webpage and click it on. And, and show, show notes. notes. Yes, both. Yeah. Uh, to leave us feedback. As a licensed nonprofit organization, we are dependent on the kindness of our beloved listeners and always appreciate your donations, which are tax deductible. If you find this podcast to be of help to you, and many of you have, please go to our webpage to donate so that we can continue to provide quality shows about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement at everyonedies.org. That's every, the number one, dies.org. Marianne? Uh, Stephen Lemke was somebody that we interviewed numerous times here um, on Everyone Dies. And he was somebody I met on Facebook because I saw him posting to somebody who was preparing for a uh, lung transplant that if somebody needed to have a um, companion that he would be willing to do that. And one of the major barriers for many people who need a transplant is that they have to have a caregiver who agrees to be with them for the entire, you know, three months of the thing and go with them to wherever the transplant's going to happen. And for when I worked at the VA hospital, many of our vets didn't have anybody in their life that could do that, that could take the time to go do that, or maybe they just didn't have anybody at all. And Stephen was offering to do that, which is a major commitment. And so I messaged him and we talked, and I had a couple wonderful interviews with him, and um, he was, you know, he'd mess message me back and forth and that kind of thing. So Stephen was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and had a double lung transplant seven years ago. And the two years of COVID was really hard for Stephen. Um, he had COVID twice with long stays in the hospital. He had um, additional cancer diagnosis. He had a um, skin cancer that is something that can happen after organ transplants because of the medications, the um, anti-rejection medications that people have to take. And then he was diagnosed with bladder cancer. Now, Stephen spent a lot of time helping other people learn about and coping with IPF. He talked very openly about IPF in his interviews with me. And um, this interview is, is really interesting in that we talk about what it takes to qualify for a lung transplant. A lot of people will, I've heard patients say, well, I'll just get a transplant without really knowing what's all involved in, yeah, right. in getting yeah, approved yeah. For, for a transplant. So um, this interview is really good in that it Stephen talks to you about what he went through in order to qualify for that for his double lung transplant. Um, <clears throat> Stephen died at age sixty nine on March twenty sixth, twenty twenty two. He was in hospice, and um, for a, a lot of the time up until the end, he was still messaging and talking with me. So this show and um, this interview is from in memory of Stephen, and we hope that you learn about lung transplants. Now today, it's my pleasure to have Stephen Lemke back. He, um, if you haven't listened to the recording that we did about um, IPF, please 
go to the website and take a listen to that one. Um, IPF is a lung disease that um, Steve was diagnosed with a while ago. And there's drugs that can help slow down the course of that disease. But um, the, the kind of best symptom management uh, for that is available now for that disease is a lung transplant. Now, organ transplantation is the process of surgically transferring a donated organ to someone who's diagnosed with organ failure. So in the case of Stephen, his lungs were failing, so he had two lungs transplanted. But many diseases can lead to organ failure, including heart disease, diabetes, hepatitis, cystic fibrosis, cirrhosis. Um, injury and birth defects may also cause organ failure. So it was Stephen's IPF that um, caused his lungs to uh, not be functioning the way they were needing to, and he began the process for a lung transplant. So Stephen, hello and welcome back. Well, hello. Thank you. Um, Stephen's going to become our frequent flyer about how to explain all of these um, different aspects of having a serious illness. And um, I only just talked to him um, over the phone, but I absolutely love talking to him. So I hope that everyone enjoys this interview today. So how did you go about making the decision to have a lung transplant or two lung tr lungs transplanted? Well, um, I was given the uh, decision, as you say, by my doctor when he said You're, the only hope you have is a lung transplant. So I, I just went along with that thinking, oh, this is it. I mean, if I don't get a lung transplant, it, you know, life is over. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I just went along with it and I went along for the ride. And um, at this point, I, I consider myself an old timer now because I have passed the five-year mark since my transplant. Right, so just recently, a, right, last month? Yes, uh, August uh, 21st mm -hmm. of this year was five years. And so we're so throwing the been, confetti and saying congratulations. Oh, God, yes, yes, it's absolutely wonderful. And uh, so I have been on the roller coaster of, you know, what it's like at this point. So I feel like I have, you know, confidence enough to, to talk about it. It hasn't been just a few months or a year or something, you know. Mm -hmm. I've, uh, so what's the I've process the, of getting listed, of getting on that, you know, the the list to get a, an organ? Well, um, what I went through was uh, extreme testing. I believe I had 50 or 60 tests that went, uh, it took nine days of testing uh, for various different things. I mean, um, at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and my wife and I, we were down there for 14 days, and you know, including the weekends. And it was uh, from 7 in the morning until uh, 4, to, 4 or 5 every day. Uh, none to stop. No, no time to stop for a break or lunch or anything. It's just that if you happen to get a minute, you, you know, gobble down a sandwich or something. And um, it's very uh, difficult. And I was... Um, I was in a wheelchair. My wife pushed me around 
for the for nine days carrying a oxygen tank on uh, on ten liters uh, per minute of uh, oxygen, and there was a ten liters. Wow. They have they have people at the clinic that um, you can call at any time, you know, and say, "Oh, I'm running out of oxygen," and they'll run you up another tank. Or in my case, they just kind of followed me around because I'd go through them so fast. And um, I would go through a tank in an hour or so just sitting in the wheelchair. I mean, not even doing anything. Because every time I'd go into an appointment, you know, they would have oxygen coming out of a a port in the wall that would hook you up to. You weren't on your tank every time you were inside of any office. Mm -hmm. And... and, um, so uh, after the nine days of testing, I mean everything. They test your heart, your liver, your kidneys. You know, you go. I, I had uh, wires shoved up my arteries, and uh, I've got holes in my neck where they go into my neck looking for for things. And I mean, it's just, I mean, very rigorous testing. And I think anybody who's thinking about going. Uh, through the transplant has to understand that, that it's not just you go in there and you talk to a doctor and they say, okay, we're going to put you on the list. That is not, that's not in reality whatsoever. It's nine days of rigorous testing. You have to fast every day. So you only really get to eat on the weekends. And, um, and uh, then once you're done with all the testing, of course, a board meets of all different types of doctors and all the doctors you've went through the test with, and they make a decision if you should be a candidate for a transplant. And even and so if you purpose, are, let me interrupt just for a second. So the purpose oh, of all of the course. testing, the purpose of all the testing is to make sure that everything else is working the way it should or better. Except for the part yes. that they're going to switch out. Yes. Right? Yes. Right. And uh, so, at, if you have some... diabetes, if you have liver failure, or you have you're overweight, though, or if you're smoking or whatever, if you have any of those things, that's going to knock you out, right? Uh, yes. Yes, unless it's like very, very borderline, you know, then what they would do is they would just say, okay, we want you to take care of this, you know. See if you can lose 10 pounds or or whatever it might be. Get your cholesterol down. Do some exercise, whatever the their recommendation might be, and then we'll see you again if you can accomplish this, you know. And um, okay. the way it was explained to me is if you take a ruler – a uh, 12 foot ru- or 12 inch ruler, and um, there's a spot right in the middle, right on six inches. And if you get in that spot, like you don't have this wrong, you don't have that wrong, but you excel in this and you excel in that, and you, they can fit you into that six inch mark, then you are a candidate. Mm-hmm. And um, if you are a candidate, then of course they all meet again and you go through more less rigorous testing um, to see if they should put you on the transplant list. Because just if you're a can also include like um, depression and mood and that kind of thing. Oh, of course, yes, 
yes, I had to meet with a psychiatrist more than once. Um, and uh, all the time, I mean, these doctors are not just trained in their specialty. They are watching you. They're aware. They see how you're acting. They see how you answer the questions. They see if you're paying attention, you know, and uh, this is all taken into consideration before you are put on the list. You know, and they they all compare notes. They're all a team. It's the transplant team. Mm-hmm. Uh, more specific, it's the heart and lung transplant team uh, at Mayo Clinic. And they all um, confide with each other constantly. You know, if one of them throws up a flag, then, you know, um, well, then the rest of them might start watching and say, yeah, well, maybe not, you know. You have to, it's very... You have, to, you have to be, have that good attitude. You have to want it. You have to need it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot more than just taking a breath test or an x-ray. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's very involved. And, and part uh, of the reason for that is because they know what comes after the transplant, which we're going to talk about. Because you have to, if you are fussing about, you know, being in Minnesota for nine days and how come I waited 10 minutes for this appointment or whatever, that will play into, oh, sister, you've got a long road ahead of you. If you're complaining about this now, there's going to be a lot more, you know, and are you going to be able to handle it? Is that a fair assessment? Oh, that is right on. You nailed it. Uh, that was even brought up to me at one time. Oh, really? Uh, yes. On the last day that of my 14 days or nine days of tests, I met with the psychiatrist again. And all this time I've been on steroids and I haven't been eating. I've been fasting every day. And uh, uh, I was getting a little snippy, you know. Mm-hmm. And the, the psychiatrist threw up a red flag. She said, I don't think you can do this. She said, if you can't handle this, um, you don't need to be being taken care of by our staff and be grumpy and and uh, snippy with them. They don't deserve that. Wow. And so I had to take all that into consideration, and I had to go home, and I had to adjust my attitude. And, and of course, on the return visit then, you know, I... Uh, I, I met with the psychiatrist again for for quite a long time, and and she then approved me. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the, the first time she said, "No, I don't think you have the right attitude for this." And uh, so I had to go home and and uh, really think, you know, that yes, I was sick and I was on all these steroids and I was stressed, but that's not anybody else's problem, you know. Well, and it's not going to necessarily end with getting the transplant, right? So when right. they get to that, right? Yeah, so, so that, that could hold you back. <laughs> so they, they approved you, and how long did you have to wait once you were approved? Well, I was very lucky. Um, I was approved. Well, I finished up the, uh, the testing in uh, about the middle of May, and I got a letter in the middle of June that I was uh, approved to be on the transplant list. 
And at that time, I was, I think, in my blood type, in my clinic, uh, fourth in line wow. to get a transplant. And um, so, so, so but I mean, it was still our, a, so to be clear, clear for the listeners, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but sometimes I think, oh, I think I need to clear this up. No, you're doing so, fine. So the first hurdle is you, you know, you find a transplant center. You get accepted, you go through um, all of that testing, they meet, and at that point they can say yes, any place along this way, you can be kind of bumped out of the, of the, of the queue. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then you finally make it, so they say, okay, we're going we're gonna to list you. Well, mm-hmm. now that you're listed, does that mean you get an, an organ right away? No. It depends on what organ you need, what tissue type you are. You know, there's other factors. So then you're put on right. the list, and then you wait. Yes. Right. Okay. And then there's people on the list ahead of you that have been on there for whoever knows. You know, that could be on there for a week or two years. You know, so right. they're ahead of you because you know you basically are looking for the same pair of lungs, mm-hmm. and so. I was fourth in line, and this was the middle of June. And of course, I would look online every day and say, "Am I where? Am I moving up? Am I moving up?" You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I never did. Um, and then I went back for you know, because once you're done with that, uh, the nine days of testing, they want to see you back like every couple of weeks, depending on what. Uh, condition you are in or how bad you really need the lungs. For me, every two weeks I had to go back for three or four more visits and they would do more things. And um, In the middle of July, I was, so I was on the list for one month, I was there and uh, I did a, a six-minute walk test and mm-hmm. a, uh, a pulmonary breathing test and when I finished those, they immediately put me into the hospital because I had deteriorated that fast in a short period wow. of time. And uh, they just said, I hope you brought an overnight bag because I'm getting the room ready for you. You know, out of nowhere, you know, surprise to me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went into the hospital that day. And then I, I, uh, I waited in the hospital for 30 days. Um, 35 they days. They kept you in the hospital for 35 days? Yes. On uh, what's called an OptiFlow. Um, oh. And I was on 45 liters per minute uh, of oxygen. Holy 24-7 for 35 days. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, and so because they wanted me right there when they came in. You know, they didn't want any to lose any time. And mm-hmm. also, I couldn't I couldn't get enough oxygen at home. Right. Had I st- had I stayed at home, I would have just died. Mm-hmm. And uh, so once they put me into the hospital, and um, I moved up to number one on on the list for my blood type. Mm-hmm. So I I guess the other uh, patients who were uh, ahead of me, the other three weren't as bad. They were still at home. They were still able to function. Mm -hmm. So I moved ahead of them. I see. 
And uh, one of the things that I have to express that I can't express enough is that um, for, I'm going to say, a good six months prior to even going to the testing, um, and then my 35 days in the hospital, I went to pulmonary therapy. And um, I was told after the fact, after the transplant, that's one of the reasons that I made that list so high was because I was physically strong from going to pulmonary therapy uh, oh. twice a twice a week for about two hours each time and uh, would walk on a treadmill, lift light weights, be on a bicycle, um, whatever the pulmonary therapist uh, decided that, you know, I was strong enough to do and capable of doing it, I did. And even on the treadmill, if I was only going one or two miles an hour with no incline, if I did that for 20, 30 minutes every day, that's what made me strong enough to go through this. Wow. Uh, a lot a lot of people will um, you know, say, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. Well, I'm sorry. You're probably not, you know, you're not going to make it. If you, That's one of the reasons I was picked was because they figured that I had enough uh, leg muscles and um, to be able to, go through what you have to go through after the transplant. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like getting on an Olympic team. You have to train for it. You have to be ready you, for yes. it. Yes, I would advise that strongly to anybody who is considering a transplant. If you haven't already, start walking. If you're able to walk outside, walk outside. If not, get a treadmill, get into a club, do something but you have to walk, 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 even if it's a half a mile an hour to start, you know? Mm-hmm. So... so you have to pu- push your wheelchair around, whatever, but get up right. and walk. Right. Now, there's a financial um, part of this, isn't there? Yes, there's like, an obligation you have, yes. I mean... Because Does it depend the, uh, on your on your insurance? I mean, yeah, are are there a lot of copays that people have to prepare for? Well, in my case, uh, my wife had insurance through her employer, mm-hmm. and uh, also I had uh, I was on Medicare. Mm-hmm. So between the two of those, they virtually paid for everything. I think we had like a two thousand dollar copay or something just for the year blanket mm-hmm. for the year and uh, so it costs like two thousand dollars a year for all of these services and uh, mm-hmm. the, the the medication that you have to take for the rest of your life after the transplant is extremely expensive so they want to make sure that you uh, have a source to pay for that so is that part of the consideration of getting onto the um, transplant list? Like, do they look uh, at money? Well, they, they never really come out and said that, but because I had the finances, they didn't bring it up. But I, I, I think yes. Okay, I think so that yes. would be that would be something to think about if 
if you're thinking about getting on that list. Yeah, yes, and inquire early, you know. Yeah. So do you – I understand that, you know, there has to be um, somebody who will commit to being a caregiver or a care partner um, for transplants. And I've seen people who haven't been able to have transplants because they didn't have that support system to go be with them during the testing and during the transplant. Can you talk about that? Yes, that is a requirement. And um, it is uh, – uh, that is another thing that I didn't really understand completely until afterwards because um, – you're really immobile. I was anyway. I, was, I have to speak just only for myself. I was completely immobile for a while. Um, my surgery took 14 hours, and then I was out um, for, see, I went in on a Friday night. I didn't wake up until Wednesday. So during all this time, I mean, they're keeping you out. You're you're getting a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, drugs into your system, and mm-hmm. it messes with your your mind and with your memory. And um, so you know, after the transplant, it takes a long time just to remember to take your your pills, or remember which ones to take uh, at what time. Well, plus, and, when you when you go like you went to Mayo. Don't they require that you have a care person be oh, yeah. there oh, you, for your you, surgery? You, you have to. Well, you have. My requirements were you have to have a caretaker with you all the time for three months. After you have to stay in town. At I had to stay. We had to stay in Rochester for three months after uh, the transplant. Before they could so even they think about you, releasing me to go home. Do they give you housing there? Is that part of your insurance? Well, or there is you, a place. Well, yeah, they have a what is called a uh, gift of life transplant house. And uh, if they have room there, you and your caretaker can stay there for it's a cost. It's like $30 a day. And you bring your own food. You have your own room. It's a community kitchen. There's, uh, it's just, you know... Uh, they have two of those houses there, mm-hmm. and um, but we did not do that. We uh, rented a house because we had a, a dog and uh, two kids mm-hmm. uh, that we were there with, you know, and the kids had to go to school and, and continue their life as normal. And um, so we rented a house while we were there, and the insurance, our insurance anyway, covered a certain amount of the rent of the house as long as I was there. Mm-hmm. So okay. if for let's say they covered $75 a day uh, and every day that I stayed in that house, we would get $75 towards the rent. Mm-hmm. But if I had to go back into the hospital for something, then, and my wife and kids were just there, then the insurance didn't cover anything because I was in the hospital. Okay. And in my case, I got uh, a uh, infection um, in my wound, my opening, and I was back in the hospital for 40 more days. So, oh, my gosh. 
So for those 40 days, of course, the rent wasn't covered, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, a, it's yeah. a big commitment for people's families, and yes. you do have to have, is it required, if you don't have a caretaker um, that can be with you through the process, you're not going to make it onto the list. And like All I said, right. I, yes, yeah, that's right. You know, I've 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 worked I've worked in oncology before I retired, and I mean I had patients who had nobody, and they they couldn't they couldn't get past that hurdle. They couldn't get on the list. Right, so right. I, I I know that that you're not going to make it past that. So that's a big commitment for a caretaker because if they have a job or you know. I mean, you're yes. As a family, you were able to pick pick up and and move like that, but that's not always a situation that people are in. That's right. And luckily, my wife was able to work from home, oh. and so um, she did not lose she didn't lose any work time. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, that was extremely helpful. You know, some people have to actually just stop working and. Uh, you know, in order to be a caretaker, and I just want to—I uh, want to say that I have went online, and I, w- I have gone on to transplant groups and ITF groups, and I have volunteered to be a caretaker for anyone who doesn't have one. So would you would volunteer. be able to give up and change your life and go to another city for three months? I—I I would do that to save somebody's life. Yes. Wow, that's, a, that's, so far, that's an incredible uh, offer. So far, I have had, you know, like uh, probably a couple hundred or more people say, wow, you know, just like you have. and mm-hmm. But no takers, no takers yet. But I, yeah, if, if somebody is dying and their only thing that's holding them back is they don't have a caretaker, yeah, I would do that. That's phenomenal. That is phenomenal. So how did your um, kids and, and wife, if you can speak for them, how did they manage being in a strange city for three months? Was it like... Not very well. Not very a well. A family adventure? Or <laughs> no? Uh, well, my kids, you know, they were in uh, Taekwondo here at home, and they were mm-hmm. also both in, in band. Uh, mm-hmm. And my my older son was in tenth grade, and he uh, actually had just joined marching band, and uh, he was actually in three different types of band. So that was important to him. So when my wife got him enrolled in school there, of course he he joined all the band. Uh, he was at the marching band at the school he went to, and he was involved in all the band activities, and. Um, we enrolled them in a Taekwondo class there so they could keep up with their, and then of course with all the social media, they were on, you know, online with their friends all the time. And, and uh, so that part didn't change much, but to see missing their friends, you know, uh, mm-hmm. actually being in a school where their friends were, that part was tough on them. Yeah. Um, my daughter uh, had a, my first grandchild uh, while I was in the hospital. Wow. And uh, luckily, uh, when the baby was like a month old, 
they drove the 300 miles by my daughter and her her husband and the baby and I got to see and hold my granddaughter for the first time. Oh, that's great and, that she did uh, that. I was out of the hospital then the second time just before Thanksgiving and one of my wife's sisters that lives in Omaha and my daughter and son-in-law and the baby we all gathered at our rental house and had Thanksgiving. Oh, and nice. uh, so that was very nice. You know, that was fantastic. That brought, that brought some uh, um, some of the feeling of being at home, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a regular Thanksgiving that, you know, my wife cooked and, and uh, it was very nice. So that so, all made a big difference, you know. So the kids were able to kind of realize it's a short-term thing and you'll be back with your friends and they dealt with it? Or yeah, yeah, have they there did. been they, like they, long-term they, issues for them? No. Um, I mean, it wasn't easy for them and I think it took them a while to get over it. But once they were here, got settled back in with their friends. They were younger, you know flexible mm-hmm. uh, I think that, uh, that no it wasn't any long term uh, issues with them at all but it was tough while it was going on oh it had to be plus there yeah. people are worried about you and and all and all of those issues right so yeah. in so we're going to do a third interview with Stephen where okay. we talk about the follow up you know, so we've talked about the disease, you know, part one. We've talked about the incredibly detailed and arduous um, lung transplant. But then once you have the lung, it's it ain't over. So we'll do a third, <laughs> right? We'll right. do a third interview for um, people who are considering transplants as to, okay, so what happens next? And the next part is a huge story in and of itself. So um, Stephen's agreed to 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 do another chat with me, and we'll we'll go into that part, right, Stephen? Oh yes, of course. I'm looking forward to it. Please stay tuned for the continuing saga of Everyone Dies, and thank you for listening. Like sand through an hourglass. What? This is Charlie Navarrete with a quote often attributed to Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, which he apparently never said. Death smiles at all of. Please stay tuned for the continuing saga of Everyone Dies, and thank you for listening. Like sand through an hourglass. What? This is Charlie Navarrete with a quote often attributed to Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, which he apparently never said. Beth smiles at us all. All a man can do is smile back. Hmm. And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we'll see you next week. Rest in peace, Stephen. And every day is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. 
all discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.